Hey everyone, this is Anne Doherty, and on this episode of Current, we're going to take a close look at how cities are engaging with stakeholders to meet ambitious climate change goals. We're going to take a look at things locally here for me in Tucson, Arizona, and talk about the leadership of Tucson Mayor Regina Romero and the City Council, which passed a climate emergency declaration last year that aimed to mobilize a planning process to move the city towards carbon neutrality by 2023. The declaration also stressed the need for a climate action and adaptation plan and the importance of exploring sustainability solutions like clean and renewable energy. As you know, that is an issue that's very close to our hearts at Illum. Having said that, it's my pleasure to welcome our guests three members of the City of Tucson's Commission on Climate, Energy, and Sustainability, who play an important role in providing input into the city as it rolls out this initiative. I'd like to start by introducing Commissioner Vanessa Gallego, who serves as the Chair of the City of Tucson's Commission on Climate, Energy, and Sustainability. Vanessa is also the COO of Recyco, a family-owned industrial recycling business that promotes a cleaner environment by reducing materials that are introduced into landfills. Welcome back, Vanessa. It's great to have you here. It was fun to talk to you last time. We connected on current. Also joining us on the podcast is Commissioner Alma Anidas. Alma is a doctoral student in environmental science at the University of Arizona. Alma's research is centered around environmental impacts across the U.S.-Mexico border. And finally, we are joined by Commissioner, excuse me, Commissioner Luis Perales. Luis is the CEO of Changemaker High School, a learning organization known for its citizenship engagement. And in addition to inspiring students to address social and environmental issues, Changemaker students often take part in activities like conducting sustainability audits. Thank you all for joining us. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, thank so you for having us. I'm really excited. Um, as I was saying before we started recording, I'm personally very thrilled to have you here because I have the opportunity to talk about local issues and I'm thrilled to hear more about um, each of you and the things that you're working on. But to get us started, I'm going to start with you, Vanessa. Um, can you talk a bit about the role of this commission within city government and maybe walk us through some of the issues or conversations that are top of mind for your agenda? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so the Commission of Climate, Energy and Sustainability for the city of Tucson actually came about in 2017 um, when the city dissolved uh, two commissions, uh, the Climate um, Commission, a Climate Change Commission and the Metropolitan Energy Commission. Um, and they made this new commission to be more representative of the community. Uh, the demo, you know, the demographics as well as um, the diversity right. Um, so this commission um, has a lot of uh, knowledgeable folks uh, ranging from not only energy and climate justice, but land use, food security. Um, we have folks who are architects, folks who have worked um, with sustainability and, and other, other areas. Um, so um, bringing all these folks together, what this commission was made to do, right, um, was to really advise mayor and council on the best way for not only the city to become more adaptable um, and, and sustainable, 
but also to um, fulfill Plan Tucson. And what Plan Tucson is, is, is a plan of our city um, that talks anything from transportation to building and, um, and, and environment. Um, and this is a plan that's from 20, uh, 2012, uh, that was approved in 2013 by the voters. And we're actually still working on that plan while a new plan um, will be rolling out pretty soon. Um, so while meeting those goals, I, um, the most important part, I think, and I think the commissioners will also agree, is our role in really making Tucson resilient and how to get us there. Um, so um, I think that's the part that we all really, really um, dedicate ourselves to um, is the representation, not only of our, of our community, but also being able to make those changes. And along with that is actually being at the seat at the table um, with the city, with um, our Mayor Regina Romero's Climate um, Advisory Council that will be um, for, that's already formed, but will be meeting pretty soon. We actually have a seat at that table. So right now, um, what what our what our work looks like is really preparing uh, to sit sit at that table. So we've looked at climate action, climate resiliency plans, um, but we've also seen what we need locally. And um, I, I I think I've talked a little a uh, bit too much here, but the rest of the commissioners could definitely add in. Um, but that's our main role as as the commission, and really what what we're you know made to do here. It's very exciting and ambitious. You all must be incredibly busy building out an existing plan, planning for a new plan, and preparing um, to serve. Uh, it's really exciting. Thank you for providing that context. It's really useful for this conversation. How, now, how about you, Alma and Luis? Can you tell us a bit about yourselves and some of the issues that are important to you and the stakeholders that you are representing um, as commissioners? And um, for the sake of Clarity, why don't we go ahead and start with you, um, Luis, and then we'll go to Alma. Great. So um, I'm appointed to the commission by uh, Councilman Richard Fimbres out of Ward 5. So in the city of Tucson, Ward 5 is uh, the south side of the city, which is predominantly um, uh, made up of, of the Latino population, right? So Mexicano, Chicano individuals who um, comprise the south side of the city. Um, it's a it's a working class part of town. And so, you know, my responsibility is to really bring uh, an equity lens. That's, that's one of the, the areas that I've really focused in on, um, on the commission. And um, yes, the, the, the commission now has a makeup that looks more representative of our community, but there is still room for growth and improvement. Um, and so my job in the commission is, is to, is to continuously reflect on um, asking the tough questions with respect to city and population. Um, so my fellow commissioners can, can um, attest to the fact that I'm, I'm the individual who's constantly talking about how do we restore the harm that the city itself mm -hmm. and its infrastructure and development has done to the desert, right? And so I'm constantly talking about, yes, we can conserve. Yes, we can um, you know, uh, transform our energy grid. Yes, we can do all of these things. But at the end of the day, if we don't repair the harm that we've done to the desert, then we are not stewards of the desert. We're, we are not good inhabitants. And, 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 and again, um, what I bring to the table is really talking about an ecocentric lens, right? an eco-justice and ecocentric lens. So um, a lot of the policies that come out of government, obviously, are very anthropocentric. They're designed to benefit people. Um, but we aren't the only species here in the desert. Actually, this is one of the most diverse um, areas on the planet. 
right? We have more flora and fauna than anywhere else. So I really bring that to the table. Um, I know that there's also issues of, you know, the, the working class. So looking at how do these policies actually, how are they implemented on the ground? And there is, is there an equitable distribution of resource and of attention? And, and what we've seen as a commission um, has been that historically that has not been the case. You know, other areas of town have received more emphasis or benefited. So I'm really trying to, uh, you know, represent the south side of, side of the city in a way that speaks to not just what the residents need or what the infrastructure of the city government needs, but also what the desert needs. And so it's a tough balance because each one of those um, is very unique. In addition, the south side of the city has been one of the areas that has had to deal with um, with a history of, of uh, uh, environmental just injustice, right? So um, environmental mm -hmm. racism. And so with contamination of waters and with the uh, dump being located here, the coal firing plant being located in Ward 5, um, you know, the, the Air Force uh, base and uh, Tucson International Airport, which have contaminated the ground. That's, that's not even a debate. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's a really tough balance that we're trying to strike. And it's so, um, so much an important one, you know, and I love the way that you framed that in terms of thinking not only about what we're trying to build, but also about what we need to repair. And the, um, both um, in terms of in environmental racism and what um, has occurred in Ward 5 specifically, but also in thinking about being a protector of this beautiful desert that we have and uh, making sure that, that we were stewards. I really appreciate that perspective, and I'm excited to continue to talk to you about it through this podcast. Um, Alma, how about you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then some of the issues that are important to you and the stakeholders that you are representing? Hi, yes. Um, well, I am the mayor's appointee to the commission. So I, I have like all the city of Tucson's residents will be the stakeholders. Um, it's a more general bird eye view, I guess you could call it. And in, as a city, some of the issues that are most important to us would be like water conservation and water security, having energy sources that are a low carbon footprint and making our existing and new buildings energy efficient. Um, we are also really, you know, wanting to promote public transportation and making improvements to bicycle infrastructure, especially in less affluent neighborhoods um, so, for example, this would be like having protected bike lanes, have better bike parking. Um, we are also concerned with the urban heat island effect. Last summer, it was the hottest climate, the hottest summer since climate records started back in 1987. So increasing shade through the creation of more green spaces, planting more trees um, is really important as well as the preservation and increase of native vegetation, which provides resources and habitats for wildlife here. And as Luis mentioned, like we are super diverse here in Tucson. So it, it's really important to not only preserve what we have, um, but to increase this native vegetation. Um, so just mm -hmm. those are just some of the issues that we as a city believe are important, including the mayor's office. They're um, all such ambitious issues and all so important. You know, I, I have the luxury, I think, in my work of, in a way, being singularly focused and that our company really focuses on energy specifically. And uh, certainly energy as a constellation of challenges, 
that we deal with and many of which, Luis, you've brought forward, you know, some of the effects, obviously, of energy investments involve um, environmental racism and the degradation of communities. Uh, and there are certainly things that we're working to prepare. But as, as you all look to this, this sort of wide-ranging um, and, and very important set of issues, how are you thinking about prioritization? Is that a, a fair question, or are we thinking in terms of, you know, um, trying to find this all all at the same time. This is the beauty of the democratic process, right? As a, as a commission, we are a body that is um, synonymous with, with uh, you know, um, bottom-up democracy. And so we're all, you know, volunteers on the commission, appointees. Um, and so we, we're really looking at this is that the prioritization comes from that dialogue, comes from individuals coming in to present um, you know, we recently had a, a presentation on pyrolysis, right, and the, the opportunity to minimize our, our, our waste stream um, and, and to produce biofuels and things of that nature. So we're really looking at, um, you know, work, working everything through a democratic process and also being guided by the reality of, of, of budgets. Uh, you know, in this time, for example, you know, uh, we, our plans were completely different, um, but then COVID hit. And then we we had to we had to pivot right as a commission you know this is what it, it takes so it's I think it's it's not as easy as saying we're gonna you know rank these in, in, in importance from you know one to one hundred and then get to work I think it comes down to doing the hard work rolling up those sleeves um, listening um, to each other and and then also having some some um, you know productive disagreement I think a lot of times you know. Uh, that we want to get to this, uh, this consensus state. But I think that's not how we make progress. We're going to have to have some conflict. We're going to have to butt heads. There has to be some critique and criticism, uh, but, but all with the intent of, of wanting to get to a positive place. So I don't think it's as easy as just coming up with a priority. I think that the plans that will be developed is part of that democratic process where there will be priorities. There will be obviously things that will be at the forefront and it's about making sure that whatever is prioritized is equitable. That's so insightful. There are so many folks in um, our work and probably listening who engage in stakeholder processes. And I think often when they are hard, it can feel like you're failing, you know, that maybe something's not going right. And I appreciate your perspective in saying, no, this, this is the process. This is part of democracy. This is making it work, making it happen, it is engaging in those, those tensions and then hashing them out. It's such a, um, I think, important perspective to hold. Um, uh, Vanessa or Alma, would you like to add to that at all? Uh, no, I'm okay. <laughs> all right, well, let's go ahead and jump to the next question. So, uh, Alum had the pleasure of hosting you three as guests at the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference last December, and I'd really love to hear about your experiences. Um, it's a conference that we've attended for years and, um, and is trying to tackle a lot of these challenges in various ways through various groups and, and individuals who participate. So um, almost starting with you, um, did you have any aha moments from any sessions or was there anything um, that really stood out to you? Yeah, um, I mean, just the title in itself, the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference told me that it was going to be completely different than, you know, what uh, the conferences that I have usually attended. 
Um, this one, the, the, re the focus was how to encourage widespread behavior change so that these sust sustainability efforts that we also strongly believe in um, are adopted by the majority. Um, so, you know, that focus on behavior change was what was very different. Um, I particularly remember one of the presenters was sharing about their efforts to help homeowners and renters take control of their energy use and how to make their home more energy efficient. And they spoke about how their participating families had varying levels of familiar familiarity with the furnaces mm -hmm. and AC systems found in their homes. Um, some of these families were refugee families. So, you know, they came in with a varying levels of knowledge of these AC systems and furnaces. And there was also differences in knowledge with energy efficient rebates. So the goal of this program of the person who was presenting was to avoid energy poverty which occurs when families spend a significant part of their income to meet their energy needs. Um, so it reminded me, you know, how here in the city of Tucson, we have discussed how ambitious our climate and environmental sustainability efforts are. But I do know that some concerns, some residents are concerned with the cost of these projects and how they could maybe divert from funds from other sectors, such as schools. So, I think that translating the benefits of these efforts into monetary savings um, and how these efforts are not just like good deeds or how some people may see them like from the from a saviorism perspective, but really allowing people to own the message um, and see that these are common sense or you know they make logical sense for us to adopt these measures. Uh, and hopefully by having the community on this message, it increases the likelihood of accepting the message and hopefully influencing behavior change, um, which also includes uh, a change in perspective. Mm -hmm. That's really um, great. I'm really glad to hear that you gain benefit in that way. And it's a, a, like a sort of a perennial challenge we're dealing with um, or deal with in energy as to how to make these things that are so invisible and so um, in some ways easily forgotten, tangible and real for folks in a way that helps them see the benefit of making um, changes, either behaviorally or in terms of the, the infrastructure of their home. Vanessa, what about you? Um, as someone who's deeply involved in local conversations, specifically around mobility and transportation, was there anything that you took away from the conference in particular? Um, well, for starters, um, I loved how the con the conference made transportation and mobility intersect with almost every single workshop. <laughs> and so it was really, <laughs> I, I didn't have to look for transportation. I just had to look for the intersects. And that's really where, where I, I like to advocate, right? Um, because when we talk about mobility and transportation, a lot of times, you know, our tunnel visions like, oh, these moving... <laughs> metal bodies, um, but we're really talking about movement of people. Um, so what I loved about the conference, right, not only was it talking about the actual transit system, but it was also talking about the movement of people and access to that mobility. Um, and and that's, I, I'm a huge advocate for that. So one of the my aha moments was how important it is to measure access. 
um, to make those changes, especially in those areas that we talk about our underserved communities, our communities that have been historically um, uh, underserved and also, you know, have been historically impacted, you know, by, by um, in, um, interstates, um, by the grids, and also um, by deserts that we, we, we live in a desert, but we also have food deserts. We also have you know, um, medical deserts on certain parts of town. So to access those places um, is fundamental. Um, so um, I loved how um, one particular one was just advocating how to make change is really measuring accessibility um, because that's what really transportation is about. We can talk about um, the actual vehicles and, and, and right, reducing, reducing carbon emissions, that's important fundamentally, right, to all these things. But when we talk about transportation, it's really about measuring access. Um, if we're looking through the equity lens, which this commission um, will probably repeat itself in saying that um, we use that to make our, our, our decisions. So um, mm -hmm. it, it was really important um, to me that that was represented and it was in so many ways. And I think right now is prime time um, to be able to talk about this in the city because we're about to launch our master mobility plan that's gonna govern our next 20 years of transportation in the city. And when we talk about transportation, right, is what is it gonna look like? Electrification of vehicles, hopefully, right? Um, and we have some of those buses here, which is super exciting to see them not only operate right but to see them across your town and to see that as as a real reality um i think we were mentioning bicycling this tucson is one of the best places to cycle um worldwide um, we're known and yet what does that look like what's accessibility to certain communities to bicycle because if we're talking about um, ward five we're talking about cycling in areas that um the airs are not the same that air is not the same as air in another ward you know, and also talking about historically gridlocked and um, those areas are not accessible or safe. Um, so all these conversations come into play, especially right now with our master mobility um, being launched. And in fact, we have some talks coming up um, next month, which is really exciting. So this, this conference really just provided um, a lot of information for that. It's so exciting and I'm so glad to hear that. Uh... And as a resident, I can say I'm very excited for the transportation plan myself. And um, years ago, I worked on uh, the ca a campaign for better transit in the city of Chicago and came to understand how limiting transportation can be and how enabling it can be, depending on how it's planned. And even in a city like that, um, how it was used specifically to disenfranchise communities, to keep communities separated. You know, and so um, something that is a, what we think of as so neutral as bike lanes, you know, or um, EV buses, it can be uh, so um, fraught with challenges and also all of these histories that we have to contend with, too. You know? So, so cool. I really, um, I want to just keep talking about that, but we, I wanna, we have so many things to cover, so I'm going to keep going and hopefully we can have like a, a phase two of this conversation because this is really great. Um, so, uh, Luis, I'm going to move to you. Your school's curriculum and approach reminds us of um, so many of the sessions and conversations that folks have at BAC. You're teaching your students how to behave and how to use the planet's resources to slow and or mitigate climate change. Um, and you found some success with youth. 
how do we scale the kind of conversations that you're having at your school to, um, to thinking about engaging adults and um, particularly the city of Tucson? Right. So, um, so being the, the, the chief executive officer of, of the Institute for Transformative Education and Changemaker High School, um, it's, of course, it's our responsibility to, to rethink what the education system can look like. The traditional educational system hasn't changed much in the last hundred years, right? And so when we're looking at uh, the pedagogy, the pedagogy really looks at uh, incorporating um, eco-pedagogy, like talking about how do we benefit the earth. Now, doing that in an institution um, with the captured audience is a bit easier. Of course, there's, there's challenges, uh, but it's really about getting young people out um, into the real world, getting them be, you know, moving beyond just the four rooms of the classroom. Um, and now with you know, this, this, this era that we're in now, right, the, the, this virtual experience um, is, is providing you know, some opportunity to do that in a different way. And I think we'll continue into the future once we, we establish kind of a new normal. But I do want to like remind listeners that you know once upon a time there was a the blue bin campaign, and the blue bin campaign was to bring in the concept of recycling, and um, they didn't start the blue bin campaign with adults. They started the blue bin campaign campaign with kindergartners, right? Kindergartners were going home and talking to mom and dad, talking to grandma and grandpa, right? Tio and tia, nana, tata, and saying, "Don't throw that away. Put that in the blue bin." And so I think there's a, our young people can be influencers in that way, right? Provided with, the, with good information, provided with access, provided with opportunity, they can start to change the trends. They, in essence, change the behavior of adults, right? Um, you know, uh, those of us that, were, that are on this call, we were part of that campaign. <laughs> we were in school when those folks were coming in and saying, and, you know, we did change our parents' behaviors, Right. And now we're advocating even more. So I think, um, you know, there's that whole adage about you can't teach old dogs new tricks, but if that old dog has kids, those kids can change that old dog, right? And I think, you know, not to be crude, but I think we have to rethink uh, young people in their capacity as, as organizers, as thinkers, as solution seekers, as social innovators, um, and not just put them as those who receive service, but they're those who can actually push the agenda. Right. That's been my my passion for over 20 years now, working with young people so that they can see that 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 opportunity in those lights um, that exist for them. And sometimes it takes the older generation a little bit of time. They're used to it. It's all about habit. And, and I think the conference spoke to that. You know, what are the habits of individuals and what are the habits of different generations? You know, the millennial generation, they're not purchasing vehicles at the same rate. They're not purchasing homes at the same rate. You know, they're changing behavior. Right. Um, the big box stores are going away. You're buying everything online, which then creates a new form of transportation and pollution, right? And so I think when we talk about engaging adults, you know, we move from pedagogy to anergogy. And I think it's, it's really asking the question, what, how do we want to be engaged, right? Uh, it's not going to be a scientific report. I'm, I'm, my grad school experience and at the university was fantastic. And I read all those reports and it's, but I don't sit that and read that for fun, right? I'll read it for my work. I'll read it for the commission, et cetera, but I'm not reading that for fun. So I think we really have to rehumanize this opportunity to change people's behavior, right? We, and, and I think the conference was a, a great reminder of the different steps that can be taken. You know, I think that bottom up approach, and a lot of times we, 
we're constantly looking at um, how to change folks' behaviors from the top down, a policy, you know, like changing some type of, you know, incentive or rebate. Uh, I mean, if you look at the city of Tucson's rebate program for, you know, water conservation with respects to um, high efficiency uh, washer machines or low flow toilets, that didn't really change the behavior with the, in the communities that needed it the most, right? Why? Because there was no, you know, high efficiency washing machine campaign in kindergarten, right? So then there's no way that that gets home, right? So we have to rethink. And I think, um, you know, the successes that we've been able to have with young people, it's about building their capacity as, age, as, as change agents, right? And what we call eco change makers to be able to then influence and then talk to parents to say, you're parenting change makers. You're parenting eco change makers, then there's a responsibility there. And it's sad to say, but the majority of the education system is not following that model. They're, they're educating students to be able to pass a standardized test. And so they're not becoming influencers at home. So then the behaviors of parents don't shift. And so we end up with the same old, same old, because they're not learning it at school and they're not learning it at home. So then those kids are going to become adults and those adults are going to have children. And then you have that self-perpetuating cycle. It's not very different from generational poverty, right? We're going to mm -hmm. perpetuate a climate uh, catastrophe behavior pattern because there is nothing that's intervening. And so I think the educational system has a huge role to play, but up to now has not stepped up, at least in the United States. If we're looking at other, other countries, um, you know, they're way ahead of the curve when it comes to how mm -hmm. to change behaviors in schools that can then influence home and influence adults. Luis, you just blew my mind with making the analogy between intergenerational behavior um, related to um, what we can see like um, poor environmental behaviors to intergenerational poverty and do completely just change the way that I think about behavior change and mitigation and just like really flipped it on its head. Because I think we tend to think about of engagements just at the level of like actor to actor, you know, person to person, and not often at the level of generations and norming and creating cultures, trying to um, influence cultures of behaviors, right? And um, that just really just like, just totally opened me up. I really appreciate that perspective. It's very cool. And it's exciting to see so much activism happening among young people right now. I mean, we are really seeing young people kind of step forward and break out from norms specifically around questions and issues of racial justice, but also around climate. I mean, they are the folks essentially on the streets um, protesting. And I can say even for my daughter, it's her number one fear, you know, in the way that I grew up during the Cold War, like in the 80s, I was afraid of nuclear war. She's terrified of climate change. You know, it's the, that's her anxiety you know, that she, that she lived with, um, and unfortunately at 11 years old. So maybe I'll be sending her to your uh, high school so that she can, <laughs> she can become a change agent. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just so excited to learn more about it. All right. So Vanessa, now let's, I'm going to turn it to you. So, um, during the last four years, as you know, um, the federal government has really receded, um, from clean energy. There was a real sort of gutting of the EPA and the, the Department of Energy. And at the state level, there's really disagreement over who should own Arizona's clean energy policy right now. So we're seeing a real sort of um, play for ownership um, between the uh, Arizona legislature and the rulemaking body of the Arizona Corporation Commission, 
Uh, how does this broader uh, political context that we're in right now in Arizona um, impact the commission's approach to its work, if at all? Does it have an effect on how you're thinking about what you're doing and how you want to move forward? Uh, yeah, certainly. We've talked a lot about representation here and how important that is. So while our Arizona legislative body um, is voted, we voted those folks in, we voted the folks at the Arizona Corporation Commission in, we're still talking about representation. Um, so, and we know that whenever we're talking about power, whether it's utility or political, we can't um, leave out Maricopa County. Um, so a lot of times, whatever we try to do locally, um, we have to navigate that space, including the power that comes from Maricopa County. So while we're talking about um, where does uh, power, um, you know, um, energy uh, policy lay, you know, right now we're talking about the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is my most diverse I've ever seen. Um, and, and we're talking about power here. So either way, whether um, we're talking about making something locally, we have to always um, operate within that field. And um, right now at climate action, anything having to do with climate, anything having to do with energy, we know it's, it's, it's a topic of, of tension. It's a topic that it's almost an uphill battle, um, especially um, in the state. Um, in other parts of the world, you know, it's, it's a lot worse, right? We were talking about people putting their lives on the line to, to make change. You know, while we live here in Arizona, um, we're still putting everything we got to make this change, to make changes. So um, I'll use electrification of vehicles, which is um, one of the subcommittee that we established in our commission. We have um, someone from the private sector and our commission actually has an appointee of utilities, which is uh, Tucson Electric Power being represented. Um, so those two folks, as well as our energy manager, Michael Contezaro, keeps us in the loop regarding energy. And um, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I, I know that this commission is being looked at and not just by folks in Pima County. And it's because of the conversations we have. It's because the, the ambitious goals that we want to do. So a lot of the times it's, it's sad to say, but some of our um, big ideas might actually end up being, um, you know, maybe uh, <laughs> um, hindered by, by certain, in certain ways, right? Um, both either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so we don't operate in a silo. You know, anything that happens politically, you know, just up the road with our friends um, in, in Maricopa County really affects us here in Pima County and just the city, right? Because what we, our work that we do here isn't just for the city, it interacts with our neighbors, right? With, uh, with our other folks. It's such an important perspective to hold as we think about action at the local levels, but you're always in some ways in conversation with these larger government um, influences in the state. You know, um, in the, for, for another conversation, I would love to pick your brain on why that isn't, why this tension exists in Arizona, having lived and worked in other states, both led by different um, parties, party affiliations. Clean energy always was, always remained forward and climate mitigation was always sort of forward in the conversations, irrespective of which parties were sort of in control at the state level. 
oddly has been largely bipartisan, which is not typical um, for this at the federal level. So at some point, I would love to pick your brain on what's unique about Arizona, because it's a relatively new Arizona, and I'm just curious to know. But we can we can table that for another another conversation. Um, so Alma, I'm going to um, turn it to you and ask you a little bit about your research at the University of Arizona. So uh, while there, you studied how one Arizona community designed an environmental risk assessment in partnership with various state and local agencies and, and also stakeholders. Um, how does that research um, that you've worked on and this risk assessment research inform the way that you think about priorities related to uh, your work on the Climate, Energy, and Sustainability Commission? Yeah, so for my master's degree project, I worked uh, with this one Arizona community, but then I also worked in other projects that allowed me to work with other communities, um, one of them, which is Tucson. And I was able to speak directly and work with families. Um, and in my conversations with them, I realized that for the vast majority of them, making sure that their families, you know, including their children, have a safe place to live is the most important thing to them. Um, so this includes having access to clean water, um, safe spaces for recreation, an environment free of pollution or being free of exposures to pollutants that can impact their health. And these families were dedicated to invest their time and effort in this research projects because they were motivated by the fact that they knew they were gonna get information specific to their community on the quality of their environment. Um, for example, the whether the soil that they gardened in and grew their their vegetables was safe, uh, or whether the rainwater that they were harvest, uh, harvesting through rainwater harvesting was safe for them to water their plants or give to their pets. Um, all that information was very valuable to them. And obviously, like once the projects concluded, we would get back and report back this information. So this has influenced um, the way that I see my work here in the commission or, or my priorities is that understand how concerned communities are in knowing their quality of the environment and how this impacts their health and also having access to this information and the way that this information is presented so that people can make informed decisions about how they choose to live. It's um, really interesting, and it kind of just comes back to how deeply personal all of these these issues actually are. You know, it as you're saying, sort of comes right back to making decisions about one's family and one's well-being. You know, and the and decisions to support the people you love and the communities that you love. This is a really compelling um, perspective to keep and like hold in mind as we all do our work. Um, Luis, uh, as you're thinking about representing Ward 5, which covers most of Tucson Southwest Side, as you said, and it includes, you know, the University of Arizona tech parks at the bridges, but also, as you mentioned, the airport, also a number of industrial spaces and residents, you know, residencies and um, communities. Um, how are you seeing development sort of unfold in, in Ward 5, and what do you see as the primary sustainability improvements or benefits that you would like to see as this as the city continues to pursue development in the area? Great, so other than the, the city government, the county government, you have the University of Arizona, 
right? That has a huge influence here. Um, uh, we can't mention, we can't also refuse to mention Raytheon, right? Which is uh, basically, um, you know, a weapons manufacturer that's right to the south of, of Ward 5, right? Um, at least to the residential uh, area of, of uh, Ward 5. Uh, I, I want to go after the University of Arizona uh, first, uh, because I think there's actually a great opportunity there. So if if we know the history of, of uh, the University of Arizona, you know that it's a land-grant institution. And so land-grant institutions were established. There's one in every state, right? And the purpose of the, of the land-grant institution was in essence to keep alive the agricultural base of the United States, right? And so, you know, initially, um, those were mom and pop, you know, type of farms, right? That we needed individuals who knew how to make the land productive. And there was a huge investment in that process. Uh, now, the reality is that this is now a huge subsidy for agribusiness, right? Most of those individuals who are studying, most of the federal dollars that are coming in, those individuals don't go back to work on mom and pop farm. They go to work at a huge agribusiness or a, 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 you know, a chemical uh, factory, right? To make fertilizers and whatnot. And I think we have a legacy here of, of promoting that, both at the county level and the city level. For example, uh, the, the, the county allowed a Monsanto uh, you know, a facility to you know, locate itself here in Pima County. And uh, you know, tax incentives and you know, free water, right? We're talking about water cons conservation and then free water is given away for decades to these institutions, right? Um, so uh, I think there's an opportunity here if we could rethink that same approach of making um, you know, the mom and pop agribusiness important as the base of the American uh, livelihood, if that would be reimagined as ecological sustainability, if that same initiative and energy and investment where there is already, not just here, but you know, throughout every state, there is already one in land grant institution if you would just add a sustainability component to those land-grant institutions, the research that Almajo is engaged in, the research that I did at the university and others would be actually supported. There would actually be a funding stream. Uh, you, know, you wouldn't have starving students, grad students, you know, doing work uh, and trying to make a living and trying to, to make a name for themselves. You would actually have an industry that would then come to fruition because it is being actually propped up by federal dollars, right? We saw this happen with HBCUs recently in the previous administration, right? There's a lot of critique, but HBCUs came out very highly supported, you know, millions of dollars going to each one of those institutions. And so an initiative that would bring those dollars here locally could really transform how the university not only works in Tucson, but works throughout the state, right? So that we're uh, using that same fervor that, that existed you know, back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, right, uh, to, to bring agriculture back after the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, um, you know, these were initiatives that, that are were bold once upon a time. And I think we can reimagine things to, to actually, you know, um, take on the, the challenges of this time period. The Dust Bowl and the Great Depression was huge. And FDR and, and the New Deal and all of that that went into the establishment of these institutions, you know, and the funding streams that have come consistently could be reimagined. And I think there could be a, a potential. So, you know, putting a tech park at the bridges uh, in Ward 5, 
uh, to me is nice, but it doesn't solve the issue, right? For me, uh, I, I always tell folks to, to think bigger. Think bigger. Why not? Why not reimagine how these institutions work? Well, that's because it's, they've always been, it's always been that way. Well, why has it always been that way? And is that still working, right? You're, you're hearing the new administration, for example, talk about, you know, what if we stop subsidizing big oil? What if those subsidies go into renewables? What would happen? Well, we know what would happen. <laughs> Everybody knows what would happen. Exactly what happened to big oil is what would happen. So I think when we're talking about development in a place like Ward 5, you know, all, all politics is local, but all politics is national. Right? You, we, you can't not isolate these things, as, as, as Vanessa mentioned, right? We are not in, we're not isolated. We're not in a vacuum. And so Ward 5 is not in a vacuum. Uh, but it has been the dumping ground of the city. Let's be clear, right? Uh, every time I go down Kino, uh, Kino Parkway to head home, because I live in Ward 5, and I've lived in Ward 5 for, for 20 years, right? Um, and this is the air we breathe, as Vanessa says. This is the water we drink. My children drink that water, right? We planted this soil here, right? Like We're not devoid of, of understanding that this is where all of the harsh chemicals are at. This is where the, 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 the most uh, the concentration of pollution is located. And, you know, uh, this is also where it's a high, high poverty zone, right? High stress and poverty zones are located here. So I think we need bold investment and we need to help reimagine. So any development that's here, I would say what percentage of that development is actually going back to helping to, again, repair the harm? Uh, we have a broken record on this over and over. I'll give one more example and pass it on to other folks here. But, you know, uh, there's some beautiful soccer fields that were established by the county government in Ward 5. And there is going to be even more development uh, in that same area that's going to bring in sh a shopping district and a hotel and, and bring in tourism. And, you know, it, it, it's going to be replacing what used to be spring training, which I think is beautiful. I, my son plays soccer, you know. And so I think it's amazing. But that's also huge tracts of desert land that are being dug up and reformed to fit our needs and our economic driving machine. So if it would be a one-for-one one, for every development that was also a restoration, we would be way ahead of the curve. It, it, heck, it should be two-for-one. You know, <laughs> you develop something, then you, re, you restore two things. And that should just be part of our policy. That should just be something that we dream and imagine. Because right now, business as usual has gotten us into the problems that we face. Everyone loves a two for one, right? I think it's a good, <laughs> I could see that slogan moving forward. And I, um, I just appreciate so much the challenge of thinking much bigger than both the moment, but then also more broadly about the effects that we can have in our investments and really grounding that in terms of uh, reparative work. Um, you know, as you're, as you're um, engaging on the commission, what kinds of things are you hoping to also prevent? Uh, you know, talk about um, sort of uh, the benefits that you'd like to bring to the world, but are there certain things that you want to avoid seeing or things that you want to prevent? Great. So, I mean, one of the things in the commission knows, right, I was told no on the commission to a project, right? I was told by our, by our city mm -hmm. government, like, we can't do that. That's not something we do. I don't like hearing no. Like, I'm not one of those people. Right. Um, and so, you know, I found another way and launched a new project, which is taking off. And one of the things I wanted to do through the commission was prevent silos. 
right? I wanted that to live within the commission, that we would bring folks together that were doing amazing work in the city so they know who they are. We know who they are. The city knows who, who's, who's doing what. And then we start cross-pollinating. And, you know, the, the powers that be within our, our democracy said, you know, that that's not something that we see as, as important or doable within the parameters of the government. Great. The beauty of being in the United States is that you can be entrepreneurial. And that's my bread and butter, right? That's where I thrive. So, you know, what I try to bring to the commission is a can-do attitude. Uh, what I don't want to see is, is we stop at no, right? I don't want to see the commission just, well, we were told no, that's it, it's over. There's always a way. If one door closes, 10 doors open. Find the other doors, right? If, if, if we're told that this is not possible, there isn't someone else that will tell you it is possible. You just have to find those individuals, work with those individuals, right? And, and it's about working with the folks you want to work with at the end of the day. And that's what I bring to the commission, right? I respect my fellow commissioners and colleagues. I respect the points of view. We don't always agree, right? And I, and I think I don't want a space where we all agree. I don't want to be on a, on a, on a, a rubber stamp type of commission or board, right? I think it's important that we, as I said before, there is creative contention. And I think, you know, what I bring to the table and what I'm hoping that I continue to push is, you know, this idea that it, it, it can be done in another way. There's always another way, right? And that it isn't just in the hands of the experts. Because if the experts were actually that good, then they wouldn't need us. Right. And so a lot of times the experts get way more credit than is actually necessary. Those experts, if they were so great, if all those PhDs could solve the problem, then we wouldn't have any problem, but they can't solve the problem. That's why we're here. And so that's what I bring to the commission, this idea that we can't give away that responsibility. We cannot just hand over and say, well, they know and we don't, you know, yes, we respect that information. Yes. We respect the work that's being done, but at the end of the day, they need us, right? And, and their status quo isn't working. So for me, I'm always going to bring to the commission the opportunity to challenge the status quo in a, as respectful and professional as possible. But nonetheless, it will be challenging the status quo. That's great. Well, someone has to do it, right? So the, it is an important role in all... Uh, in all building, as you said, and sort of creating that creative tension. As you all look forward, and I'm admittedly going to go off script, I want to hear from each of you about the thing that you're most excited about uh, to work on on the commission. What is the the one thing that, um, that makes you feel really inspired? Like you wake up in the morning and you have meetings later in the day, and, and you're all, as you mentioned earlier, volunteers, right? You're giving your time freely to serve all of us in Tucson with this ambitious project. What, what excites you? What fills your bucket? And so with that, I'm going to start with um, Alma and for that question. Yeah. Um, well, I've had all sorts of jobs growing up. Um, you know, some of them, many of them ha were less fulfilling than what I wanted. You know, there was like a lot of corporate jobs. I didn't Feel like my time or energy was being spent towards the greater good of anything 
Um, so knowing that, yeah, like Luis mentioned, grad schools, grad school students are starving. Um, yeah, we may be a little bit underpaid and, you know, be doing all this hard work and effort. And also like my volunteer work here with the commission. Um, I know that at the end of the day, like it's something worth doing um, that hopefully will have a greater impact for, for generations. Um, and so that we can stop our toxic behaviors and the way that we are treating our mother earth, that we are just destroying for the sake of humans and not really um, taking into consideration our relationships with not just humans, but you know the animals and plants that are around us. Um, we are all part of the same home. So just knowing that, that, you know, I'm, I'm working with a group of dedicated people who share similar beliefs. Yeah, we might not always agree, but, you know, we have a common vision that is very empowering and motivating to me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And Vanessa, how about you? What, what um, inspires you as you work on this commission? Um, we've been talking about this land, we've been talking about this space, and um, just want to acknowledge, right, that we are on, on indigenous land, right? So we, we owe it not only to um, the ancestors of this land to take care of the space, but also for future generations. And I know many of the commissioners um, come with that, with that intention, right? So a lot of that um, motivates all of us daily, right? We, we live in a balance. Um, we're hearing Alma talk about Mother Earth. We're talking, you know, we're hearing um, Luis speak about the importance about restoration. Um, so I think fundamentally, all of us are leading with, right, that we protect um, our land, our tierra, you know, we protect it um, for our ancestors and for the future. Um, but what motivates me, you know, is, is that I was that child growing up in the system, learning about in the system, in, in the educational system, learning about recycling, learning locally about the importance about um, water conservation from um, our local, um, I think his name was Pete. Pete um, was like this character that would come and talk to our schools <laughs> about water and like the importance of, of water in the desert. And I remember being little and thinking of that and growing up being like, I have to protect, right? I'm, I'm tasked with this, but we are. And um, every day I wake up um, with that acknowledgement of this land, you know, and that it's, it's not mine, you know, but it's here for me to, to take care of. Um, so that motivates me. And the fact that I can sit on a commission and be able to be part of the conversation, sit at the table um, is empowering and um, being able to make that change. So I think that's a motivator enough. And, and the fact that it needs to be done because if, um, you know, if, we're, if, we're, if, we're, if we don't do it, who's gonna do it? Um, and a lot of times you don't have a choice, right? So um, I think all that, all that motivates me to be all, <laughs> all of it, I love it, it's, it's perfect. And uh, Luis, how about you? What, what motivates you? What excites you about this? I mean, for me, 
it comes down to, and Vanessa mentioned it earlier, representation, right? Um, you know, I, I, I reflect on my experience and for all intents and purposes, I shouldn't be on a commission. You know, I shouldn't, my, statistically, I shouldn't be representing this, this, this ward. I shouldn't be in Arizona. I shouldn't have gone to the university. You know, all of these things. Statistically, there's the vanishing Latino male in higher education, right? Um, you know, my, my fellow you know, young men of color are dying and being incarcerated at higher rates than anyone else. And so for me, what wakes me up in the morning is being an example to my children, my three boys, and saying, it's tough. You know, it's tough. We're going through a, a, a time right now that is completely necessary. The critique of masculinity is extremely necessary. Um, but it's hard to, to, to teach the next generation to be men when we weren't taught to be men, right? So for me, it's about representation. Having somebody say, whoa, that guy's up there. He looks like me. He has a story like mine. If he could do it, I could do it. You know, my children think they could do, like, they could outdo me any day of the week, right? And that's what I want them to think, right? They hear me on these commissions and these calls and conference calls with folks, and they're seeing that and normalizing, again, as we talked about earlier, normalizing that behavior where they are seeing me do this um, and, and others that I've brought along the way, right? And, and, and of course, you know, I work with, with both, you know, with all students, but I have a special place where I'm trying to turn the tide on the statistical negatives that, um, that have inflicted folks that look like me and carry my gender for a long time and turning the tide on, on the harm and, and um, that folks that look like me and carry my gender have done to the earth and to women um, and, and to each other. Right. So I think what wakes me up in the morning is trying to be better. Um, and, and this is part of the work. You know, I, a long time ago, I was always told to put up or shut up. You know, like you, you just can't be complaining. You got to do something. I didn't like the educational system. Then I created a school. I didn't like the way it was working. So I went and did something about it. I don't like how, you know, the environment's going. I created a grassroots organization. that was going to help brown folks get into the mix and get their hands dirty, you know. I didn't like how, you know, local government was dealing with stuff. Then I got involved to, you know, raise awareness and get folks involved, right? And so I think that's the big piece for me. It's, it's about that representation and about being that, being that, just being a, not a symbol, but at least a, uh, something that, that folks can aspire to and, and hopefully surpass. I want my children to surpass what I've done. I want other young men to surpass what I've done. And I want there to be a realignment and it's hard work. And I think dedicating time and energy to taking care of, of our earth, right. Donancy, our, our mother, then, you know, it, it, it's a, it, it is part of our warrior tradition, right. And it's reframing that I come from a warrior society that that is my people. Right. And there is an indigenous line there. And, um, it's been bastardized and we've, we've used it to inflict harm in the wrong way. And so for me, it's about trying to remember um, how we're supposed to do this, how we're supposed to walk on this earth in a sacred way, how we're supposed to right those wrongs, how we're supposed to ask for redemption, right? And, uh, and, and, and if we can start with, with restoring the land, then maybe we can just have a chance of restoring ourselves. 
Well, I don't, I, there's nothing to say after that, except that I, um, just in talking to you, Luis and um, Vanessa and Alma, that I think all of your children will surpass you because it will be a testament to your legacy and what you're contributing to Tucson, but also to our society. I feel so privileged to have been able to share this time with you. Um, I appreciate you um, giving even more of your precious time to having this conversation. And I really do hope that our listeners um, walk away from this as inspired as I am. And as a Tucson resident, I'm just, just thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing. I, I appreciate you. And if there's anything that we can do at Illum to support you, you let us know because we'll, we'll be here and showing up. Um, again, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll be following you all so closely over the next few years and, um, and of course, what the city of Tucson is doing. So thank you so much. And um, please do answer the phone when I call you for all the follow-up conversations that I want to have with you <laughs> because this is just, you, you all have just blown my mind. So thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. And um, just for listeners, my name again is Ann Doherty, and you're listening to Current. Current is produced by Loom's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you got as much of this out of, um, or got as much out of this as I did, and we'll talk to you next time.